Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Six members of the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America won election to the Chicago City Council last year. As you've probably heard me say on this podcast before, we've interviewed several of them for this podcast. One of the six who was elected is Rosana Rodriguez, elected as Alderwoman of the 33rd Ward on Chicago's Northwest Side, mostly covering the working class and immigrant but rapidly gentrifying neighborhood of Albany Park. If you want the full backstory of Rosana's life, you can listen to the episode of The Dig that I guest hosted back in 2018. I'll link to that episode in the show notes. She's been in office for eight months now, so I thought I would check in with her. We talked about what her time in office has been like, why she's supporting Bernie Sanders for president, and the continued battering of her native Puerto Rico by both weather and climate change and austerity and colonialism. Here's Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez, City Council Member of Chicago's 33rd Ward. Rosana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You were one of six members of the Democratic Socialists of America who were elected to the City Council. So what has that been experience, both for you and for the, the group of the six of you, been like so far? So as, as most people know, uh, being in city council also means that you're the alderman. Uh, so I think that there's um, two things at play there, which is our work as legislators and as people that are creating the, the laws of the city and also the work that we do at the ward level. The work that I do at the city level um, in terms of legislation, it's actually been uh, a steep learning curve, I would say, but also a really amazing experience, particularly because there's so many of us now that are like truly progressive, um, that are willing to push for things that maybe before people wouldn't have. So what's an example of the kind of stuff you're pushing for? Before the, the budget vote, um, something really incredible happened. Uh, we were trying to figure out um, how to get the mental health uh, clinics that were closed by Ram Emanuel reopen. We sort of have a sense that that was not going to happen, but we wanted to be able to push for something substantial um, in terms of uh, of mental health care for the city. Right, and for people who are not in Chicago or who don't remember this, it was a few years ago now that Rahm Emanuel closed a number of the public mental health clinics in Chicago, uh, which has really... I, what I hear from people is that it's exacerbated what was already a mental yeah, health it has crisis had, in the city. It has had a very detrimental effect um, in in the people um, that, that used to receive services at those clinics. Um, so the mayor of Chicago wanted us to confirm um, Dr. Arwadi as the as the commissioner for uh, the public health department in Chicago. And uh, it was a really interesting dynamic as we went into the hearing to to confirm her, to get the nomination out of committee and then be voted on in city council. But we were not getting the information that we needed in terms of the mental health clinics. And each of us spoke on the floor of city council about how important this issue was for us, and we were not getting answers. And the mayor's team realized that they were not going to get that 
nomination approved in committee in that meeting. And that is like, that doesn't, that didn't used to happen ever. Well, all votes in the Chicago City Council used to be basically unanimous, right? It'd be whatever the the mayor wanted, the mayor would get from the 50 city council members. So that was actually a a really interesting moment when we sort of looked at each other in that committee (laughs) and we said, oh, we have power here. We can actually make decisions and, and we can push back. Um, so that was that was a really incredible moment for us in terms of reaffirming the fact that we are able to organize together and 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 push back. The the reason why the mental health thing matters so much is that that is both important in its own right, obviously, to have public mental health services yep. in the city of Chicago, but also because this is a prime example of austerity in the city of Chicago, that uh, what, what austerity means is cuts to these vital services like mental health. Rom, uh, <laughs> Rom excuse me, uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, the mayor, I get them confused sometimes, uh, but the mayor Lightfoot put forward this candidate uh, who would be the head of the of the mental health services, right, who, who would not commit to reopening the right. closed clinics. Yes, we, we were able to get uh, concessions. But at the end of the day, what it turned into the mental health framework was a lot of investing in private services versus open, reopening the actual city-owned uh, mental health clinics or expanding services or investing on, on them, right, on the five clinics that we still have in Chicago. So that was a really big conversation um, where we were able to point out that we are actually invested in public service on the city owning on the city providing services and i think that was like a a really important discussion where obviously there was friction because we were talking about giving the money to all of these nonprofit organizations um but we actually wanted to strengthen the the public component of the mental health framework and you also mentioned the budget vote which is an interesting story on multiple levels again you mentioned before that dissent on the Chicago City Council is not something that people are used to having to deal with uh, when it comes to what the mayor is putting forward. Before we did this interview, I was reading up about the budget vote. I did not realize that Mayor Lightfoot had a pizza party with aldermen who voted for her budget. And uh, assumedly, you were not invited to the. I think I heard. I think party. I heard that afterwards. Um, yeah, I think I heard that. No, I. How I hurt were you was, when you didn't get that invite um, to the pizza party? <laughs> I think Rosanna? that day I went to Randolph Tavern after <laughs> after the budget vote, and I had a really nice lunch. <laughs> so, what were the? Just talk about the, the reasons for not voting for that, because there was there were I think fifteen of you total who voted against the budget. Uh, and the budget, I mean, in addition to general austerity measures, it has stuff like a giant property tax increase, which, uh, in my opinion, is the kind of thing that socialists and, and progressives should not be supporting, should not be. Well, in this budget, there was not a massive uh, uh, property tax increase. It, it was, was scaled back, it right? Was, it, was, yeah. it was actually a small uh, property tax increase to fund libraries. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of people said, well, I will vote for this because I want the library open on Sundays in, in my communities. But it's always this mindset of this austerity mindset, right, that in order to do that, we will have to pass the bill to the already like struggling working people. Right. And, you know, when I gave my speech on the floor of, on why I was voting um, against the budget, I did make it clear that I understood that there was no layoffs, for example, that the property tax increases were not big. But we left so much money that we didn't claim because we refused to look at several measures that we had been putting forward, um, like a corporate head tax, like a pilot, which is a measure to for um, universities and hospitals that are non-for-profit and don't really pay property taxes uh, to pay a fee in lieu of taxes. So so we had several measures that we were proposing but they were never really considered or taken seriously in the in the process. Um and you know like we know how much wealth there is in Chicago. Chicago has um a lot of Fortune 500 companies that are based here and we see how uh, much disinvestment there are there is in our communities and somehow we just can't find a way <laughs> to tax the people who have the most money and i we really need to crack this <laughs> because um because somehow we always find ways to tax working class people there is no limit to the amount of taxes and fees that we will impose on poor people um, and working class people but somehow we just haven't figured out how to get the money where it actually is so i think um, i mean that was the those those the main spiel when when we talked about why we were voting against the budget um i think we really need to tax the rich and mm -hmm. and this was not a budget that allowed us to do that in the coverage of the vote, there's, you know, in the Chicago Sun-Times, it's written, like, in a statement and later on the council floor, socialist alderman accused the mayor of underfunding social services, overfunding police, and breaking her campaign promise to reopen shuttered mental health clinics and tax wealthy corporations and nonprofits to pay for it. It's wild that that's just Who, in the Sun-Times. They, they were talking They just said socialist alderman. Oh, in plural. Socialist yes. alderman. Yes. Uh -huh. That, that, that you all are instantaneously seen as this important block of votes on the city council. Well, I think that people are just not used to having, I mean, this is very new <laughs> to have people deciding to push back. And we had conversations, you know, with other um, fellow progressives that are not necessarily socialists, but we talked about the idea that when Mayor Lightfoot took office, it was all about democracy and transparency and about not wanting uh, a rubber stamp city council but to have dissent and to have let uh, the light in that was her campaign yeah slogan, right? and 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 that's what we were doing right we were trying to engage in conversations about how do we make sure that we can fund um the services that we all need in order to be okay um so i i mean i think that what we were doing was not even radical it was we're just demanding what is necessary in this moment. And most of us were elected to do this. We were elected on really bold platforms that were demanding that social services and the most essential services for the city were actually uh, delivered. And, and that's, I mean, that's why we're here and that's what we're going to continue to try to do. And what about stepping back from these specific issues that we've been talking about? What about the general experience of 
being on the council. I mean, you're somebody who I've known for a long time who has always been involved in grassroots organizing fights, and you're just like very much like a scrappy person, like fighting in the streets. Uh, not literally, you know, punching people in the streets, but, you know, organizing in the streets, organizing protests, organizing on that, mm-hmm. on that kind of grassroots level as a socialist and as a community activist. And now you're in the city hall. You're in the halls of power. And uh, I imagine it's a, a sort of a, a jarring transition to make to be filled, you know, be in rooms filled with people who are not the kind of people that you've spent your entire life hanging yeah. out with. I'm, it's it's complicated to navigate that space, but I continue to do the other things as well. Yes, to be clear, <laughs> I haven't given up on that, and I and I don't want to. I don't think I don't see myself as a career politician. I'm occupying this seat right now because this moment required for me to do this. Um, but I think that we're. I think that I keep doing the same thing. This Saturday, actually, um, uh, February first, we're gonna have. Um, a people's impeachment trial for Donald Trump. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a host for that. <laughs> I've been participating in protests um, for Puerto Rico because uh, those things matter to me deeply. And then from my seat, I think I, I also continue to organize, not, you know, not in a revolutionary um, fashion, but I, I feel like organizing our neighbors is going to be essential in order for us to be able to deliver the services that people need. Um, in the last few weeks, we have been rolling out a participatory budgeting process that have actually been incredibly successful. We have already had over 500 people vote, which is pretty incredible for the first time that we are rolling this out in the ward and to be, you know, our first time doing this. Um, And people submitted beautiful projects for our community and we're consulting. And um, I know that sometimes people hear 500, but there's like 55,000 people in the ward and yes people are right to point that out but if those 500 people don't participate then one person makes the decision which is me (laughs) so 500 people making the decision is way better than just one person deciding with you know no 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 criteria necessarily who, who am I going to be, you know, where am I going to be allocating um, these resources and why would a mound for the native community or, uh, or or a garden for, you know, for some neighbors or what, how do we, how do we decide, right? So it is important that people participate. Um, we're not done with the process. Uh, people can vote until the 31st. So we still, we still have some time to go. So moving from the local issues, you're somebody who's been out on the front lines for Bernie Sanders. Uh, You and everybody else in the Socialist Caucus announced official endorsements of Bernie Sanders. You're in a video uh, from the Bernie campaign announcing your endorsement of him. You were uh, you and I went to Iowa last weekend uh, or two weekends ago, I should say, uh, to knock on doors for Sanders. Um. Can you talk about what that means to you? Why that? Why you're out? You know, traveling to Iowa to get this guy elected. There's there's so many reasons to be engaged in and 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 see this with such urgency that we need Bernie Sanders to win the election. Um, I mean, the principal reason is because Donald Trump has to go, and I honestly believe that the only person that is going to be able to deliver that is going to be Bernie with all of us, right? Um, one of the most important things and, and the thing that I respect the most about Bernie um, 
and his history is that all the time, every time that he speaks, he is talking about building movement. And I think that somebody that is going to be in the highest office in the United States, in, in the highest office in government, the most powerful seat <laughs> that a government official can have, and is telling people to organize and make demands, that is somebody that I can trust, right? <laughs> that is somebody that is not only running um, to get the seat, but is somebody that is invested in staying accountable to the people that are going to elect him. Um, he knows perfectly well that without the pressure of the people, without the voices of the people, without the fight, we're not going to get anything done at the government level. It's just not going to happen, right? Because that's not how this system is wired to work. But if we are able to pump people up with the idea that these things are possible, that we can have healthcare, that people deserve to have a roof over their head, that we don't have to be paying our student loans forever and never be able to do anything else with our lives because we just have debt. Like all of all there is to this life is debt. <laughs> um, people are getting that message and people are going to fight with him for it. So I would say that he is inciting people to demand the things that they deserve. And he's offering, okay, I, I got you. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to fight for this, but I need you to fight with me, right? And I feel like that's a lot of what my story was when I was running. Uh, I'm not comparing myself to Bernie Sanders, but I feel like to me, um, running for this seat was also an emergency, was we need somebody that is going to go fight and that is going to take us with with them right um so i i just respect that infinitely and i mean i have a lot other um reasons i bernie has always been invested in the well-being of puerto ricans um so when i think about what has happened in puerto rico and how he was one of the only people to be to in all fairness warren is part of the bill as well but bernie proposed a marshall plan for puerto rico that actually even talks about erasing the Puerto Rican debt, like that, that you know, in order for Puerto Rico to gain full recovery, we can't pretend that Puerto Rico, the government of Puerto Rico is going to pay $72 billion in debt. That was not even like the people didn't see any benefit from that money. It's just it's just wild capitalism. Bernie is someone who, uh, as you mentioned, has, has these plans for Puerto Rico. I read his uh, most recent book, and he has an entire chapter on Puerto Rico, which is not something you will see from any <laughs> other person who's running for president. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, talk a little bit more about that uh, that connection the, and what Bernie Sanders is is pushing for Puerto Rico and, and, and what that means to you. Well, Bernie has consistently speaking out for Puerto Rico, and I, I think that after Hurricane Maria, for example, um, when he came out with this Marshall Plan, it was, to me, it was... Like <laughs> it's incredibly refreshing, right? That and and beautiful that while the actual president of the U.S. was throwing paper towels to Puerto Ricans and accusing Puerto Ricans of um, of wanting everything done for them and humiliating Puerto Ricans and deciding, you know, that there was not enough people dead, um, you know, not not even acknowledging the numbers. And um, I mean, it, it was it was imperialism just thrown in your face, so disgustingly like it just yes we know you don't care about us but can you at least pretend you know it's and, a kind and of old no, school like colonial 
uh, attitude, which obviously the whole U.S. Puerto Rico relationship is one of a colonial attitude, but Trump is just very open about it. It was disgusting, and it, it to me, you know, it reminded me so much of Katrina, and I remember how much Katrina hurt, like just to watch. Mm-hmm. People and mostly black people be in that situation where their lives just did not matter, and all of a sudden it was us, and it was almost the same, the same thing. Yeah, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, so, um, so to see Bernie come out and say, "No, this is what we need," right? Like we need to release aid for Puerto Rico. Um, we need to make sure that 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 debt goes away because there is no way that they're going to be able to recover. Um, it, that it shows a, a profound commitment, right? First of all, to the understanding of our colonial reality and the abuse that Puerto Ricans have endured, um, and a commitment to to our recovery and to be treated with dignity, right, as as human beings. Um, so I, I, I am deeply grateful. <laughs> Um, that he has consistently been um, talking about what's happening in Puerto Rico. Besides what happened after Maria, um, Bernie has been consistently paying attention to what's happening in Puerto Rico politically. Most recently, there was um, uh, some protest in Puerto Rico after the earthquakes. Small, and I can definitely protests, yeah. talk, talk about that in more detail, but Bernie has been paying attention and has been on our side, right? Yeah, so... I mean, Bernie has these strong positions on Puerto Rico, but obviously who's in charge right now is Donald Trump. And the the both the combination of just nightmare, like apocalyptic, continued disasters befalling Puerto Rico mixed with this colonialist, like racist, just attitude of open contempt by the Trump administration – is really I, I don't have any personal ties to Puerto Rico, but it's like painful for me to see, and I can only imagine what it's like for somebody who has so many ties to the island and has family there and uh, everything else. So, um, yeah, can you talk about some of that stuff that's happened recently? I mean, there's there's you know Maria, which is several years at this point. There are were the most recent earthquakes. There was, of course, uh, the mass protest that brought down Governor Rosselló. Um, talk about some of what's gone on in the island lately and, and your response to it. So after Hurricane Maria, um, Puerto Rico has had a really hard time um, recovering. I have visited home several times. There's still like lights that didn't work. There's still so much damage, you know, in the infrastructure of the island that there's just no resources to fix. So a lot of things were just left like that. There was for a very long time after the hurricane, there was no traffic lights in Puerto Rico. So people had to learn how to live without traffic lights and figure it out, which is incredibly dangerous. (laughs) Um, So that's an example. Um, So recently... Um, in at the beginning of January, there was uh, a set of earthquakes that took place. Um, Puerto Rico is actually situated on the Caribbean plate, tectonic plate. And uh, it's not clear what is it that causes the activity. Um, but it became activated and, uh, and there was several earthquakes that one of them got to, I believe, six point one or 6.4 and that was really damaging Um, over 700 homes have collapsed um, in the town of Guanica which is a a place that I have a lot of love for because um, 
I've had a lot of experiences in, in that area of the island. It's the southwest side of the island. Um, a school collapse. Uh, it was... Uh, we were very lucky that uh, the children were not in school, that n there was nobody in school because um, it was Three Kings Day the day before, and um, uh, Puerto Ricans celebrate that holiday. So there was no kids inside, but the, the three floors just fell down. So if the kids would have been inside, if the teachers would have been inside, everybody would have died. Um... One of the things that happened, uh, people then started coming out of their homes and they didn't want to go inside. So people started camping around their homes. Um, then camps were established. Um, people couldn't, wouldn't dare to go to their homes even to get their pills or their medicines or anything. Because they're worried. Because about, they're worried that their homes uh, are right. going to collapse if there's another earthquake. So all of these camps start becoming established uh, because of what happened in Puerto Rico after Maria, Maria which uh, had to do with the government not being transparent. Um, I think not being transparent is such a nice way to describe <laughs> what happened in Puerto Rico. We don't have a lot of time. So the government of Puerto Rico showed a lot of corruption. And because of it, at some point, the people of Puerto Rico ousted the governor um, protesting. Millions of people came out and and protested for a very long time <laughs> and did civil disobedience in front of the mansion and he was ousted by the people of Puerto Rico. And let me just stop you real quick. I, I want to know how that was for you to watch that because... Uh... <laughs> it was a mix. It's a mix of feelings. I feel like I was so happy that it was happening at the same time I was crying every day because I spent all my life in Puerto Rico fighting and being a minority. Right. And, and, you know... And, all of a sudden there's hundreds of thousands. And then all of a sudden of all of the Puerto Ricans came out and figured out that we were being screwed. Yeah. <laughs> and then and they ousted the governor. I was not there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had no hard. trouble imagining you like <laughs> next to Ricky Martin on top of that truck, like waving yeah. the Puerto Rican flag. Yeah. <laughs> so the so the governor was ousted, and then uh, the Secretary of Justice, who decided not to investigate a lot of the things that the administration did, uh, she became the governor. So when all of this disaster happens, um, all of a sudden, a lot of things are needed for the people that are camping outside. The people are living outside. I don't know if I'm making this clear. People are living outside of their homes in camps because they cannot be inside of their homes because they're scared that the roof is going to fall on their heads. So all of a sudden you have pregnant women, you have whole families that are sleeping either in their cars or on tents or, you know, outside. You have elderly people that are bedridden sleeping outside. There are kids sleeping on the floor. Um... And then one day, these people in Ponce, which is in the south side, close to Juanica, discovered this warehouse that is full of things. Like there's, there's um, mattresses and there's diapers and there's like all of these things <laughs> that people were needing. And people rioted. Like people were like, what? And they opened it and they started taking things. And then um, it was exposed that there was like 13 more of those around the island. Um it was it was a moment of what what are you here for like what if you if you are trying to govern a place and we're having this emergency like what is your role do you have a plan and there's no plan for a very long time there was no plan so people are out in the streets again protesting um people are really tired and people are really beat up 
So after the summer and after all the protests, when um, Ricardo Rosselló was ousted, I think, I mean, Puerto Ricans are incredibly resilient, but I feel like you just ask to be resilient so much and so much. You just feel like this is all you do, right? Like just fight, 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 fight. And, and you're barely making it. You're barely surviving. Um, so in the last few days, some of these camps have gotten flooded. So people are not only sleeping outside, but also, you know, sleeping <laughs> with like flooded spaces and have had to be, you know, transported to other places. Now, one of the biggest issues is that apparently most schools in Puerto Rico, over 90% of schools in Puerto Rico are not up to code in terms of being able to survive an earthquake. So teachers and students and communities are coming together to demand that there are inspections done and that people can actually be assured that their children are not going to die in school, that the teachers and the staff that goes to school are not going to die if there is another earthquake. And that is the amount of stress and the amount of anxiety that Puerto Ricans are feeling is just, it's just devastating. Like, what else can happen? <laughs> you know, it's it 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 is it is this narrative. Like I, I I have said this a few times in in a few interviews that I have had. Um, when I was growing up, they would tell us that if we were independent, uh, we were gonna starve to death, and we were going to have a really hard time surviving because we depended on the U.S. And now all of this have happened, and you know, people have died in the thousands. You know. More than 4,000 people died after Maria. People are dying right now. There have been several suicides because people just can't take it anymore. And um, and the whole point, the whole argument in favor of remaining a, a, essentially a colony of the U.S. was that, well, it'll be so much worse. You'll, you'll starve if you go independent, but people are starving as the and, island and is not independent. The, but the most incredible thing is that m- m- People haven't actually starved because they have each other. The only people that have shown up is the neighbors and the people. One incredible thing that happened was that for days, the highway in Puerto Rico that goes from the north to the south of the island was completely packed with people. There was traffic. There was a traffic jam in that highway for days. And there was traffic because people refused to give anything to the government they wanted to deliver it themselves they would put stuff in their cars and they would drive and they would look for people to give them to them directly because they did not trust that the government was going to do anything and then the warehouse appeared and then people were like yeah we were right we were right in not giving you anything so i mean right now (laughs) things are really rough in puerto rico um we are definitely there's many uh, efforts um in the diaspora um, of people organizing solidarity. Um, if you want to donate, go to Maria Fund <laughs> and donate there. That's a really great organization that uh, gives money directly to community organizations that are doing direct services. But I would say, um, I mean, there is a crisis in Puerto Rico right now, particularly with mental health. And um, I don't think that it is receiving the attention that it needs to be receiving. And what is the best case scenario i mean we're talking about some really horrific stuff that is going on on the island right now and it's just one thing after the other uh and it's so awful that it 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 is really sort of overwhelming to wrap your mind around but the best case scenario uh 
could be that Bernie Sanders gets elected president and he's able to carry out this uh, this Marshall Plan for uh, Puerto Rico. So what what would that look like? What, what, what is the best case scenario for you in terms of what, what would change with uh, a Bernie Sanders presidency if Trump was no longer So I, I think um, the first thing is going to be to invest the resources in infrastructure, in infrastructure for Puerto Rico. Um, I think infrastructure has been so um, disinvested in and um, it's deteriorating very quickly. When it's deteriorating at the exact moment when it needs to be built up as climate change exactly. worsens yes. and Puerto Rico just gets battered so more one, and more with worse So one thing storms. that Bernie speaks about a lot and I am really hoping that, um, you know, when he's elected, because he's going to be elected, he's going to be the next president of the United States. Um, that Puerto Rico is part of a comprehensive Green New Deal. Puerto Rico has incredible natural resources that right now, because of President Trump um, and and because of some of the policies that President Obama approved before he left office, um, our natural resources are being completely uh, devastated by vultures, by people who just don't care about the not even the near future that are trying to buy our beaches and build stuff there like if it's going to remain like how much is that going to last you know um so hopefully a bernie presidency will uh, create new infrastructure to have a solar grid in puerto rico we have so much sun there and it's a gift like you actually don't have to pay for that it's free energy um we have wind power in puerto rico um um, the idea of preserving the water in Puerto Rico. We have incredible sources of fresh water, um, rivers, uh, and there, there's a lot of work to do there. And then definitely we need to cancel the debt. I think that is essential for for us to be able to recover. Um, and and Bernie need- is proposing not only canceling the debt, but uh, getting rid of the junta, right? Yes. <laughs> so forgot, we, you forgot about the junta. <laughs> so and definitely, I think having a, a, a you know a, a well-rounded democratic process in the island that is going to allow us to first educate people on what the alternatives actually are, um, and then make a decision of of what kind of relationship we want to have with the United States. But whatever the relationship that is determined needs to needs to respect. Puerto Rico as, as a nation that it is, right? Um, and I think Bernie gets imperialism pretty well. <laughs> I think he understands what that looks like and how damaging it is to, to people. So I have a lot of faith that um, a Bernie presidency could actually help a lot um, with Puerto Rico's recovery. So we're recording this uh, the day after the New York Times release an article that is continuing this kind of Bernie bro narrative, the idea that Bernie Sanders supporters are, I don't know what, motivated by anger and rage and racism and sexism and just a general sense of wanting to worsen the world and bring negative negativity to the world. Um, And, you know, people who have supported Bernie have been used to those kinds of attacks. But for some reason for me lately, they've been really just driving me insane (laughs) because I know that the reason that I have backed Bernie on a personal level and why millions of people around the country have backed him is because we are motivated by this ethic of solidarity that is at the heart of this campaign. And even 
uh, an ethic of love, you could say. I mean, wanting to, there's like almost a spiritual aspect to the campaign. And so to hear people say that I'm actually motivated for the exact opposite reasons that that motivate me is 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 mind boggling to me. I, I don't know right. if you've had any similar experiences well, I, like this. I mean, I am a Puerto Rican brown woman with a very thick accent. <laughs> so and, you're getting hate but, from Bernie all the time. <laughs> no, but I mean, they're talking about all Bernie supporters being Bernie bros. But the reality is that Bernie has the most diverse coalition of voters in the whole race, right? So. We know that that is not true. We know that they just don't have anything to criticize Bernie for. So they're going to go after their followers. They're going to they're going to say whatever whatever they're going to say, um, which is very removed from reality. I mean, Hillary Clinton tried that. She talked about the Bernie bros when she when she said that nobody liked him. How did that work out? Like he raised like four million dollars <laughs> after <laughs> that. So right now, I I think that. Actually, the media is having a little bit of a hard time and, and the Democratic establishment to figure out how to attack him because every time that they try to attack him, the people who support him just support him harder. What they're doing is just pushing us to love Bernie harder, you know? And, uh, and, and you know, when I was running for office, um, there was somebody that was, that was close and that was giving me advice. And he was, this person was not necessarily in the progressive arena, but he, but he would give me advice often. And he would call my, uh, my people that were, were building the campaign the true believers, right? And that's what's happening here. People have become convinced that this is possible. And you can't stop that. Like, People have come to imagine a better world and a better reality. And that imagination is just so powerful. And we haven't been able to imagine this for so long. Like our imaginations were like all asleep. And we were like, oh, my God, all there is to this life is to pay student loans and medical debt and <laughs> high rent and, yeah. and rent you know and, and never own anything ever and not even be able to have a family and the world is gonna end <laughs> because everything is burning and then all of a sudden like we start developing this idea that actually maybe another world is possible actually maybe we can make this happen and once once you get that ball rolling, once, you know, people are able to see that that's possible, that is a very difficult thing to stop. And I don't think that they're going to be able to. And so looking to the future, you're only you're not even a full year into your term as, no, uh, as the ultimate of, of the 33rd Ward. Um, and not only do are you part of this effort to resist austerity in in the city of Chicago, um, you know, on the on the city council, but like you're kind of a beacon, it seems to me, to other cities elsewhere to show that you can do this kind of thing. Whether it's in other major cities, in small towns, uh, you know, outside of the U.S., even that that you can build that kind of uh, left flank uh, in local politics that. That, that both take strong stances against austerity, but also does organizing in your ward, which we didn't even really get into around the key issues in your ward, whether it's immigrant rights and stopping deportations community or affordable safety. housing and yeah. community safety, which is a huge mm-hmm. issue in your ward. Um, and so that's the that's the uh, that's the path, right? Is to is to continue working on those issues, and, and we're at a, at a moment where, as you mentioned earlier. We actually have a vision for what that could look like, a vision that we could fight for that seems credible, and we're actually putting some some numbers on the board. We're actually uh, 
doing some uh, inspiring uh, things. You know, people like you are getting elected to office and, and are doing things in your office that many of us never would have thought possible. So uh, it's it's as as usual. It's the sort of best of times and the worst of times. It's there's there's bleak news out of uh, places like Puerto Rico, but then there's uh, there's great promise in the thirty third. There's war. a lot of space for hope right now, and and the beautiful thing is that it's not the kind of hope that you just passively wait for, but it's it's a hope that we can actually touch. It's uh, it's a hope that we can help mold and build together, and and it's beautiful to do that with other people who believe the same thing. Rosanna, thanks so much. Thank you. You can listen to other episodes of The Vast Majority as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on this show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store, subscribe to our journal Catalyst, or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.